0: Welcome to Indigenous News and Views with Brandy Morin. That's me. If you like this program, please feel free to connect with me. You can send me an email at b at morin communications, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-O-N-S at gmail dot com. That's b morin m o r i n communications c o m m u n i c a t i o n s at gmail dot com. My guest today is Elizabeth May, Minister of Parliament in Vancouver Island, Canada. She's uh, the former leader of Canada's Green Party for 13 years. She's also a wife and mother, famous for her fierce commitment to protect and sustain Mother Earth. She's also an author of eight books and a lawyer. In 2005, Elizabeth was named an Officer of the Order of Canada and the United Nations calls her one of the leading women environmentalists worldwide. She was arrested in March 2018 for civil contempt for opposing the Kinder Morgan Pipeline Expansion, now known as Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion. That got her a charge of criminal contempt in which she was sentenced to pay a fine of $1,500. Elizabeth is also an ally of Indigenous peoples. Since the 1980s, she has worked extensively with our people around the world. She spent time in the Amazon advocating for the Kayapo people who were threatened by the construction of a massive dam on a river, a tributary of the Amazon which they rely upon. She worked with David Suzuki to raise money to support the largest pan-Amazonian gathering of tribes in history. This gathering raised enough money to lead the World Bank to reject funding for the dam. Over her years as an MP, Elizabeth has advocated for equality, the implementation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and Indigenous Rights across the board. She shared with me something she's never told publicly about what started her journey of walking beside her indigenous brothers and sisters. So, let's tune into our interview. Tom say hello, bonjour. Thank you, Elizabeth May, for joining me today. Uh, it's such an honor and a privilege to have you here. I've been following your work for a number of years. So thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you. And I want to acknowledge where I am today. I, this is my home territory. I am honored to be the Member of Parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands, which means I'm speaking to you from Sydney, which is the traditional territory of Wissanik Nation. So in our language locally, it's Sanchothen, haishka, haishka siam. I raise my hands to you. Thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Wow, wow. So I am um, curious, I mean, you have, su- have, have lived such a remarkable life um, and um, there's you know, so many different areas we can cover. Um, obviously, I wanna focus on your involvement uh, with um, you know, indigenous uh, peoples and indigenous issues. So um, I'm curious, when did you first become involved with indigenous issues and why?
1: And I, I thought, Brandon, I've got to be really honest with you because the answer is embarrassing and it speaks to white privilege and it speaks to a place of connection, which is, um, well, I'll just be, I just out myself here. When in 1964, Reverend Martin Luther King said to Americans, and I grew up in the U.S., um, this Christmas Christmas. Don't give your kids presents. Do something for for others less fortunate. Make it meaningful. Make Christmas mean what what Jesus Christ meant it to mean. But bear in mind, this is the Reverend Martin Luther King. So uh, my parents decided, let's try to do something different. And in those days, and right now, people who would view them today would be horrified, but there were TV ads for Save the Children, you know, in the same way that you'd have the kind of white savior complex to Africa, there was this, um, pro, there was these Navajo children need your help. So um, for Christmas, our present was that we had a new brother and he was uh, at Loop Boarding School. So he was in residential school. We didn't call a resident and his name is Norman Riggs. And so we became very close. We wrote letters all the time. And then one day uh, um, my he went missing. He'd run away from school with a friend. His friend froze to death and never made it home to their Hogan. But we went out to Arizona and visited, and we dropped save the children from our relationship and just had a relationship and sent money to his family. His mom had died in childbirth when he was being born. He had older brothers and sisters. And we were close right up to when we moved to Canada and then We went broke and we were still in correspondence, but we weren't. And so part of my heart is still wanting to, I have asked friends in Arizona over the years, can you help me find Norman? My mom wrote to Bobby Kennedy, who was then the Senator uh, was, uh, so back in the day, my mother having visited Loop boarding school, wrote him and said, this is terrible. These children who've grown up living in a Hogan, they they were in bunk beds and they'd roll out of bed and crack their skulls because uh, so she got Kennedy, to make sure that every residential school had guardrails on the upper bunks so children wouldn't roll out of bed really? and hurt themselves. Yeah, but I mean, this Uh-oh. was a very, this is an early engagement, but what it did for me as in 1964, I was in grade four, I read a lot on indigenous issues as a child. Yeah. So, and then as a young person. So I think I was in grade 10 when Lee Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee came out. So I was kind of made fun of by other kids in school. So because, well, I mean, they just thought I was a nut because I was so worried about indigenous issues. So I, when I was in, when we moved to Cape Breton Island, it was for the first time in my life I had indigenous friends. Because I was living in a place where it was Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Passamaquoddy territory. And in doing environmental work, particularly fighting pesticide spraying, uh, Mi'kmaq communities were very involved. And so, and then fighting Agent Orange. So over the years, I moved from being kind of this, well, I mean, a really, really separate existence from living in Indigenous communities or recognizing that we were on stolen land in Connecticut. We didn't quite recognize that. Indigenous people lived in other places, right? So it's been part of, you know, from an early age, I'd say that. Oh. Part of part of what touched my heart. But I, I mean, I'm so honored to be like at the point that I started recognizing that I actually like as a normal thing, not like a, a rare thing, uh, not like a reaching outside my space. I was in a space where Indigenous and and uh, and local warrior; uh, uh, these are my friends. It's not like a difference anymore, and that was a that was one of the reasons I loved that we moved to Cape Breton. It was a surprise thing that happened. Was um, uh, that that working closely with the Mi'kmaq was the first real connection as an adult of working together.
0: Wow, amazing. So uh, you went to the Amazon and did some work there. Can you tell me a little bit about about that and when?
1: That was a weird thing that happened. This was, okay, so my my period of working around pesticide issues in Cape Breton, that was all through the, the 1970s into the early 80s, and then I ended up moving to Ottawa, practicing law in Ottawa, and in 1989, um, or it was actually started fall of, 90, of 88, that uh, David Suzuki by this point had become a good friend and, and his wife Tara Cullis. And David was in the Amazon filming for the nature of things. And the, the smoke from the fires was too thick for their plane to take off. And so, Nature of Things was doing this this uh, special in the Amazon. I happened to be at that point out of work because the I had been working for the Ministry of Environment, and then he broke the law, so I quit. And I just decided to kind of take a breather. And I was doing freelance contract work, but I wasn't with an NGO of any kind. And um, Tara Cullis called me to tell me that David had called her from the Amazon, and he was crying. And what? she said we had to do was help, uh, and he just died of COVID. My God, Who we did? had to help Paiacan. Paiacan was a leader of the Kayapo people in uh, in, in the northern, in, in the Amazon region in northern Brazil, in a state called Para. And Paiacan had decided as, so this was 1989. He was quite young. He decided to fight this mega dam that was being uh, funded by the World Bank. And it was going to dam the Shingu River, X I N G U, the Shingu, and flood out the traditional territory of the Kayapo and other Indigenous peoples. So uh, we were going to fundraise for Piacon. and I said, okay, I'll do that. So I was still, I was taking, I was a member of the Nova Scotia Bar. I'd been working in government. I quit my job, right? So now I thought, okay, to keep calm while I'm doing freelance work so I have enough money to pay bills. I'm going to take the bar exam for Ontario. Get that out of the way. And then I also decided, because Tara asked me, we would raise money. So we organized concerts across Canada. And Gordon Lightfoot was the main attraction. We had concerts in Vancouver, Toronto, and Ottawa. And this is just kind of a collective network of people that Tara called. We raised $70,000 and gave it to Piacon. For organizing what his vision was, was that uh, indigenous peoples from through, across throughout the Amazon would gather in, of all places, the place where most of the work would be for building the dam. So not, I mean, not a place called Altamira. So we gathered in Altamira to fight this dam. Well, initially, it was just Piacon was gathering indigenous peoples. And Tara said to me one uh, after the morning of the the morning after the concert in Ottawa, to try to tell this coherently, <laughs> we were having breakfast at Tara's Hotel. And she said, I've been thinking about it. This was now February 89. I've been thinking about it. No, we had the conversation in November 88 because we gathered in Altamira in February 89. She said, I've been thinking about it and I'm worried um, that someone, that, that the Indigenous peoples could be at risk. Chico Mendez had just been killed. And he was um, uh, not indigenous, but he was part of the rubber tapper community, and he was fighting the dam too, and he was fighting the loss of forests. She says, "I've been thinking about, it. I think we need some industrialized country, uh, connected people at this event, as you know, to be there as witness, to be there, to support, just to be there, to make sure nothing that if anything happens, we see it, and to try to keep anything bad from happening. So on that theory, we ended up having a whole lot of people there. I mean, David and I were there, but that's yeah, not totally we had, and and sting. Like it was craziness. So Altamira. So the Amazon. You, yeah,
0: actually, yeah. Yeah,
1: that was the idea. It was Tara said we have to go. And and um yeah. I I'm a I'm not your average environmentalist in the sense that my whole life I hadn't dreamt of going to the Amazon. I basically don't like travel. I'd never dreamt of going to the Amazon. I thought uh, I it, it took a certain amount of, okay, we can do this. All right, ratchet up, we're gonna do this. So Tara and I became informal travel agents for this thing. And a lot of very, yeah, Gujow came with us from the Haida Nation. We had uh, a lot of participation from in um, other nation indigenous nations in Canada to get down to the Amazon. And it was the first ever gathering A sort of a pan Amazonian indigenous gathering. So it was amazing. Uh, I mean, the Yanomami people, the Kayapo, a a gathering cross-cultural, where the only lingua, lingua franca was really Portuguese she'd so be translating from kayapo or yanomami into portuguese and then into english and then into french to talk to the people who were there uh-huh. it was quite the gathering and um, and we did we we managed to that gathering stopped I and mean, of course the the sad part of the story is lately the dam got built anyway but we stopped it for decades by stopping the world bank funding and then as i said the horrific i mean and and Payakan came up to uh, lived lived for a while in Vancouver because there were threats in his life. So uh, his wife and with the kids were living at Suzuki's house. Um, so we got to be really good friends. So his his death of, of people who've died of COVID, uh, the person... I Felt cl- you know, of all the reported deaths so far, the person I felt closest to when the news came through, and of course, with the was 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 Paya Khan and a terrible tragedy because he's still been an important leader in indigenous communities in Brazil. And of course, Bolsonaro and Brazil is one of the worst fascistic racist leaders on the face of the planet. And of course, yeah. there wasn't good uh health care into indigenous communities uh in Brazil. Wow,
0: that's yeah. just incredible! So when you were doing that kind of work back then, did you ever foresee that um, these kind of um, you know uh, uh, demonstrations and 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 fight against uh, developments, industrial development here in Canada, led by Indigenous people, would be kind of on the same level as it was in the Amazon? Did you did you think that that would start to happen here back then?
1: Well, actually. It had already happened because that's how we were friends with Gujal, right, was um, the fight to stop the logging on Haida Gwai, which which then when we were fighting it, it was called South Moresby, uh, but uh, the fight to stop the logging on the southern third of Haida Gwai, which is now Guayahanas National Park Reserve, was, you know, that was 1985 arrests on the logging roads on Lyle Island oh, and no. elders being taken into custody. So and and solidifying so that that the, the logging was stopped through protest, indigenous led protests stopped the logging, and the the logging stopped in 1987. It took a number of years after that to finalize all the agreements between Haida Nation and Parks Canada. But and and so that was kind of you know that was a powerful. Um, uh, image of resist uh, it, well, lesson of resistance. And then I was mentioning fighting Agent Orange. I mean, back in in Nova Scotia in 1982, uh, the ch- the chief of uh, uh, what was then called, it was what Kagama First Nation, but Mi'kmaq Nation at Hagama and uh, Chief Ryan Gugu, who also has since passed away, but of cancer. He led uh, a, a Mi'kmaq resistance up to the top of Sky Mountain. And to put this in context, because why would we be spraying Agent Orange in Canada? Spraying of herbicides in Canada in our forest, and it still goes on with glyphosate, is basically to get rid of um, hardwood species like um, pin cherry and birch and raspberry bushes, anything that overgrows mm. the, the spruce and the fir trees that the pulp industry plants, right? So Ryan Gugu led a, a group of Mi'kmaq uh, protesters to the top of Sky Mountain where they uprooted <laughs> the little trees, the Agent Orange was going to be sprayed to protect the little seedlings. They uprooted hundreds of them and brought them down from Skype and then threw them on the ground and did a press conference. So stopping stopping Agent Orange spraying was another. You know, so I, I the the connection between Indigenous led protest and and I think it's really hard you know to try to describe it as being a good ally as opposed to the other big risk which. Can be identified other environmental groups appropriating uh indigenous-led protests and that's saying you have to mm-hmm. as, a, as a as a settler culture canadian you have to be really careful about how you describe these protests but certainly um we've seen a tremendous like with what sueton um, there's so many yeah. that come to mind but we'd also gosh I'd, at that point i i'd already been through and and this is how I got to know Ellen Gabriel was the protest at Oka. So you look back at these things you say this is a consistent thread of um, part of reconciliation I suppose but also a recognition of a different ethic in terms of how does humanity relate to a biosphere. Mm -hmm. So how do humans relate to mother earth and as soon as you say as they do in Bolivia, Pachamama, or here to say Mother Earth. It's a different level of of yes. connection. And you can draw that line right back to Chief Joseph and the Ney Per se. You can go back any, you can find, you can find this ethic consistently uh, in recorded settler culture. And obviously oral histories of indigenous people everywhere are consistent. I mean, that, that, was, that was a broad sweeping generalization that may not be true, but that's my experience.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Now, um, you, you were arrested in 2018 for um, you know, uh, demonstrating against the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline. Um, what was that like uh, for you, you know, as a leader? Did you go in knowing that this would happen? Um, yeah. what, what were the stakes?
1: Well, it was not. It was uh, what had happened again there. There's always a a backstory because you don't just wake up one morning and think I'll go get arrested. I I was at a very large gathering in Vancouver before Justin Trudeau broke his promises and approved the pipeline to begin with when it was, you know, Kinder Morgan and this so um, the when I say broke his promises in the 2015 election campaign Justin Trudeau had said that there could be no approval of a pipeline where the process to examine it had been so very flawed and the national energy board process and i had been an intervener in the national energy board process I worked and I didn't have like you know I just did this work myself I I don't have uh, I mean I have the money of an MP without a recognized party status. So I do my own research, I work mm. hard on this stuff. So as an, as an intervener in the NDB process, I I, re- I read all 23,000 pages of the Kinder Morgan bogus excuse for review. And it's important to actually, I always say I read it, there were many thousands of pages that were identical to other thousands of pages. But I, I, I feel like uh, in, this is something I learned from law school is, is to be very thorough. In, I, I printed the whole thing out. And I did have some of the the team from my, my Parliament Hill office came to my apartment on a weekend and we sorted binders with, oh, this is the same bullshit that was over there. Okay, pile that up in that corner, pile this up in that corner. Can we find anything useful? So, right, so I, I, I'd I been fighting this damn thing and I showed up at the rally uh, in Vancouver uh, thinking that we could still stop Justin Trudeau from approving the pipeline. And Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. Asked of those of us who were settler culture politicians speaking at that event, and there were many more of us who said yes than who actually showed up. (laughs) But are you prepared to stand with us and face arrest? And so when I stood up at a rally and said, yes, I am prepared. I'm signing this commitment. I'm prepared to stand up and face arrest as an ally. If called upon by the Tsleil-Waututh, the Musqueam and the Squamish, I will show up. So the call came. Uh, And and, you know, my life is quite crazy. And I look through my date book to say, okay, well, what 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 day? Oh, well, that for heaven's sakes, that actually fits my calendar. I'm believe it or not, Brandis will kill you. I was at (laughs) I was already committed to being at the British Columbia prayer breakfast at the Hyatt Regency Hotel downtown, downtown Vancouver. So I was flying out of Ottawa really late to be there for first thing in the morning to be at a prayer breakfast. Well, that fits perfectly. Lynn Cornby can pick me up and then we can go and get arrested. So um, I did know as I left the prayer breakfast, I said goodbye to the uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, and said uh, hello to Gregor uh, Robertson, the mayor. I said, I think I'll see you guys later. I I think I'm going to go get arrested now. So uh, when I got there, the only other politician to show up for arrest, is the new mayor of Vancouver, who was then the member of parliament. So Kennedy Stewart and I, and what it was like was weird because for a while we were we were there a really long time at the gate of Kinder Morgan with tons of other people. Right, there were, in, you know, and definitely indigenous leadership and I'm um, trying to think of how many people were there from Slave waututh leadership, and but the day the day was set that it wasn't going to be indigenous leadership getting arrested that day. It was settler culture people, and we. We're standing there a really, really long time. And Kennedy said to me, I don't think they're going to call the RCMP. This is something a lot of Canadians don't know. We weren't breaking any law. There's no law of Canada being broken. We were violating an injunction. Mm-hmm. And at the point that you get an injunction, the, the RCMP or any police force in this country become like the private cops that belong to that well, corporation that got the injunction. So we're standing there. We haven't, you know, and Kennedy said, I don't think they're going to want to arrest us. We're too high profile. And um, then it was like around by that point into the afternoon, and we'd been there since first thing in the morning. And suddenly, a whole bunch of of RCMP cars pulled up, and a whole bunch of officers are walking towards us. And Kennedy and I are, are linked arm in arm, and he said to me, "Oh, this just got real." <laughs> so it's 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 not an easy thing if you. have to be arrested, especially when you're a lawyer, especially when you recognize, I mean, I'm a past lawyer, I'm not a current practicing lawyer. There were complaints filed with two bar associations to try to get me thrown out of the bar and both bar associations said what I did was uh, not a violation of my commitments uh, as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And, And at the time we were arrested, of course, the federal court of Canada was reviewing the permits months later not that long after we were arrested in march by august those permits were judged to have been granted illegally but the injunction was still valid by the you know so anyway i, right. I got it they get the judge hated me they gave me three times higher fine than kennedy <laughs> like, wow. why? i don't know why the judge really i the judge that he, he's he's he so didn't you know. get a criminal like it wasn't a criminal course no. okay well they horrible. changed it from civil uh contempt to criminal contempt but even a criminal contempt charge doesn't give you a criminal record because you haven't right. violated anything in the criminal code of canada i mean it wasn't a, and it did i did have some constituents who said you know we don't want a, an mp who's a jailbird whatever but i i um i mean i've been part of the protests at clockwood sound back in 93 and I didn't get arrested only because I was still nursing my daughter. And one of my friends said, well, if you get arrested, do you think they're going to let you bring the baby in? I said, like, oh, geez, I forgot about that. They won't let me, will they? So I, I I violated an injunction but stepped off the road before the arrests happened. I don't speak of these things lightly. It was hard to do. Yes. It, it, it uh, You feel you way, I mean, I'm very rarely, this is the most outside my comfort zone I'd ever been. And I, you know, and I know that what I, what I was saying was, and will continue to say, is that nonviolent. And this is key: is that it's nonviolent. Nonviolent civil disobedience is an important part of any democracy. And the laws that were being enforced are illegitimate laws and wrong. Mm. And so I, um, I, I'm, I'm very proud to know uh, Dr. Tim Takaro, who has been tree sitting uh, this year to try to stop Kinder Morgan now Trans Mountain. Now, Crown Corporation owned by us, right? Yes, Brandi, you and I can be quietly proud. We are co-owners of the pipeline. We are trying to stop, like this is insanity. I never thought Justin Trudeau would buy a pipeline with our money and force it through, Um, but we still fight it. I don't think it'll ever be finished. I think we have to stop it. Its current start date has now budged into January, 2023. Every month's delay costs more money. Every month's delay means it's less likely to ever be built.
0: Yes, so you know we we we've heard uh, Prime Minister Trudeau say time and time again about how him and his government's number one priority is reconciliation with the Indigenous peoples, and yet we have um, you know a pipeline that this government has. that is violating indigenous rights, indigenous title to the land, not only in this case, well, this case, because it's owned by the government, but in many other different instances. Um, What do you think about that? Like, it's so, um, it seems so hypocritical, you know, to me, um, that, you know, he's telling everybody that reconciliation is the number one priority. But it, it's just, it's clearly not the number one priority is, is, is economic gain. That's what it's- it But the crazy thing
1: is the TMX project will never make money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the things I know from working on the in the NEB hearings. Okay, so this is, this is pretty juicy and hard to believe that the Canadian media never paid attention to it. In the hearings, Unifor, the biggest union for oil sands workers, intervened in that hearing to oppose the project. So Unifor opposed the project because they said this is all about shipping raw bitumen out of Canada as dilbit, which is a horrific substance that can't be cleaned up, and it will cost us refinery jobs in Canada. Unifor's evidence was rejected by the NEB, the National Energy Board, now Canada Energy Regulator, refused to allow them to table the evidence Mm -hmm. because they said, economic impacts are outside the mandate of this hearing really and then their conclusion is there's all this environmental damage there's indigenous issues all of these things are negative but it's in the national interest of Canada because of the economy from the same board that said we won't hear the economic evidence that this is negative economic impact because it's outside our mandate. If we had a decent national news media in this country, other than APT and and, and people like you, but (laughs) honest to God, how it wasn't front page news in the Globe and Mail, the National Energy Board says the economic impacts of this pipeline are outside our mandate. We refuse to hear the evidence from oil sands workers and their union that this isn't a good thing. Now, so the craziness of all that is It's not the economic interest that drove approving the pipeline. It was misguided lunacy of Trudeau advisors and particularly Jerry Butts. They all thought that keeping Rachel Notley in power was critical, not because they liked the NDP, but they didn't want to give Jason Kenney, this is my speculation at this point, they didn't want Jason Kenney winning. Mm -hmm. And I think they know that Jason Kenney doesn't just want to be Premier of Alberta, he wants to be Prime Minister of Canada. So the scenario of approving the Kinder Morgan pipeline yeah. Was to help Rachel Notley get mm-hmm. reelected, and then the buying of it was it got played by Kinder Morgan. I mean, because the, the Kinder Morgan what? pipeline, Kinder Richard Kinder, it was, like,
0: it was yeah, it wasn't viable, Enron. They, he's, they an,
1: it he's an Enron executive. Enron is famous for fraud. So what now is known as Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was then known as Kinder Morgan, was previously Enron Pipelines Limited which Richard Kinder ended up owning when Enron collapsed from fraud and his co-workers went to jail. This lucky son of a bitch ends up in Texas owning Enron Pipelines Limited with enough money to buy TMX, which was a Canadian pipeline built in the 1950s, and then keep adding pipeline stuff to it. So they figured out they could kidnap their own project, like say, you know, give us money now or we kill the dog. You know, that famous, what that was a Rolling Stone cover, I think. But anyway, they wanted to, get they, what they wanted to do was, according to Robin Allen, who's a great economist here in BC, she figured out from reading the contracts that if Kinder Morgan walked away when they realized the project couldn't make money, they would owe some third-party obligations to people, to some, in, some companies that had bought long-term contracts to move product to the pipeline. I know this gets really ridiculous into the weeds, but to avoid third-party knock-on effects that Kinder Morgan would owe other companies money when they canceled, they wanted to be able to blame it on, a th- on an external actor if, under the contracts. If it's a third-party that's responsible that you can't build the project, they're off the hook. So they set this crazy deadline of you make sure yeah. that by May 30th, we are guaranteed to be able to build this pipeline. Well, anyone with a brain in their head in federal cabinet knows the answer is we can't give you a guarantee because the matter is before the courts. The federal court of Canada is currently reviewing these permits. And while we have you have all our sympathy and oh, we hope you're able to build, but we can't jump in here and say, we can give you a guarantee when our courts are reviewing the project. They went so far, they went they, they began to see this as a matter of public relations, credibility, they wanted to be able to say to Canadians, we got a pipeline built. So that's when they realized there's no way out. So Kinder Morgan, having kidnapped their own project, they wanted to shoot the hostage, right? That was their goal. They wanted to get rid of this pipeline project. Instead, yep. they end up dealing with a bunch of people who might have well just fallen off the turnip truck with, with an unlimited checkbook of our money. to say, no, no, we'll buy it. So then we can finish it, right? Because we've committed all over the yin-yang. Every time they said, this pipeline will be built, this pipeline must be built. They painted themselves in a corner. They wrote a check mm-hmm. of our money of $4.5 to buy the existing I'm pipeline. From the, and Wait. then they say, we'll <laughs> spend $12.6 more to finish it. Anyway, as you can see, I have a, a, it's hard to Wait. stop ranting about how angry I am about this. We bought the pipeline not because of the economy. We bought the pipeline because of the political risk to the federal liberals, because they painted themselves in a corner by saying over and over again, this pipeline will be built. This pipeline must be built.
0: Yeah, and so obviously that was a number one priority. That was the true number one priority. It is not reconciliation for this government. What do you have to say?
1: (laughs) Screamingly, obviously true. I think at some level, and I have to say, I think current Minister of Indigenous Services Mark Miller is mm-hmm. deeply committed to reconciliation. And it, I, I think he literally weeps when he sees things like that incident in in Iqaluit where the uh, RCMP truck door knocks down an, an Inuk elder. I think I think he I think there's decent human beings in the pack, and I always try to try. I give people the benefit of the doubt a lot, but. Probably makes me a lot less effective because I I I don't I don't I, I can't really be partisan. I like to find good people and work with them wherever they are, but there is no question that having a mandate letter that every single cabinet minister has received a mandate letter, there is no greater priority for me and our government than reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, and then what the takedown with Sueton, uh, tradition hereditary chiefs with RCMP in a militarized presence, uh, and to to push through TMX, which we own, to decide that's the priority. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they, they have a, a lot of priorities, more than the one that they've claimed over and over again is their number one priority. As with most people in politics, you know, the number one priority is getting reelected. That's the horror of our system. That's why long-term commitments like Climate crisis or reconciliation, they don't fit in the two to four year window for making sure you get re elected. So, and this is true of every other party. I mean, I'm not going yeah. to be too partisan about it. It's not true of Greens, but every other party will say, well, look, the ends justify the means. What good mm-hmm. does it do, you know, whatever great idealistic concern they may claim they have at the moment? What good does it do ending poverty in Canada if we don't get re elected? So, to get re elected, we're going to do All these things that are massively inconsistent, enormously hypocritical. But you see, we're doing you know, and the NDP does this, everybody does this. It's a terrible thing to to make a well, hypocrisy is galling and it is endemic in politics.
0: Mm. So in regards to climate change and the you know, the knowledge and the, you know, the ancestral uh, teachings and technology that Indigenous peoples, you know, have to offer um, to help, you know, fight this crisis that we're in, you know, as a world. Um, In your opinion, um, how important is that? And what are the consequences if Indigenous uh, input isn't included?
1: Well, the consequences are extinction. We're not, we're not, this is not a small scale threat. This is not, it galls me to watch. I mean, it was, it was just a couple of days ago and I'm not sure when, when our podcast will be broadcast, but it was December 10th that, uh, uh, no, December 11th, Friday, December 11th, that Justin Trudeau and Minister of Environment and Minister of Infrastructure and all that, and Minister of Heritage all stood up to say, we're taking real climate action because we realize it's urgent, we have to do this, and left in place the target that Stephen Harper left behind. And, but it's presented on the podium in front of the prime minister, healthy economy, healthy environment. And I'm thinking, they are still operating under the wrong frame. Mm-hmm. They still think the climate emergency is an environmental issue, like, you know, saving a rare bird species they've forgot they have to start identifying this as a security threat as a more dangerous threat to survival than covid and we saw how they reacted to the covid emergency they kind of got that they shut down the economy voluntarily to save lives but on the climate emergency it what it takes it, it's it's healthy economy healthy environment that's 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 a frame that would be progressive in the early 1990s maybe but the climate emergency is now a matter of life and death and it, the ultimate consequences of ignoring the climate emergency is, is ho- horrifically extinction so if we ignore the wisdom and indigenous knowledge from forever and we continue to operate as though oh yeah we we recognize we absolutely recognize rights and title and we'll we'll acknowledge when we stand up in parliament we're on the traditional lands of the algonquin people but hello what, what does it mean? If it doesn't mean a veto, then you're not recognizing UNDRIP really. Mm-hmm. So that's where, and this is also hard for me because I know there easily could be, especially with um, under the Indian Act and elected uh, bad council government, you, you sometimes have bad projects, there's no question. So you have to say, well, how, how, do, we rec- how do we analyze and make sure that we're all move, you know, moving in the same direction for survival? But to me, if we could actually uh, acknowledge what the the wisdom um, of the Supreme Court of Canada in the Chilcotin decision, which is that Indigenous title is different from fee-simple colonial title. Fee-simple colonial title belongs to an individual who has the right to sell. And if they have the right to sell, they have the right to destroy and wreck what they've got. If we could put all of Canada under... Indigenous title, as understood through the Chilcotin decision, through the words of former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, Indigenous title is collective and intergenerational. Mm -hmm. Now, if that is true, I want all of Canada under Indigenous title to be collective and intergenerational. So then we don't have in our generation, me, old person, I'm 66 now, I want to be around enough decades to make sure this is fixed before my kids have to take over. But chances are, I won't make it. To the point where we actually guarantee our kids a livable world i will feel so much better when title is intergenerational and people my age don't have the right to destroy the life chances of our grandchildren
0: wow yeah that's powerful thank you so one other question here before we have to uh wrap up so you said in a speech i believe it was earlier this year it may have been before that but now is the time to say yes to Indigenous peoples. What do you want to say to Canada in regards to well, that?
1: Well, I'm. I don't have the. I mean, again, I'm. I'm. I'm keenly aware of privilege and being settler culture and knowing that with a, a big dose of humility, I would say that if we could, as settler culture Canadians, really connect with the values and the life principles of the Iroquois Confederacy the hot nonsense, if we could actually identify that things are intergenerational, the decisions we make now have to be valid for the seventh generation. As I said, in politics, we can't figure it out for 10 years. We can't figure it out for the rest of our lifetime. We're too short-term, too self-interested, and all about the power. And if we could, as a people, decide, and globally decide, Indigenous values and wisdom, are the salvation for humanity, whether you're settler or indigenous. If we don't figure this out, if we don't get it right, and as a Christian, I would say, if we don't figure out getting in right relation with the creator, that the the, the, the Adam and Eve story, which of course is fable and myth and all that, it's not literally true, but it's a very good way of identifying where we went wrong. We went wrong when we separated ourselves from the abundance of a natural world that gives us everything we want. We went wrong when we adopted the hubris that humanity is in charge, that human beings are, if you will, top dog. We went wrong. And if we're gonna be in right relationship with our creator, we have to be in right relationship with all the other species with whom we save this planet and share this planet. And I think as this is, could I say to all Canadians, stop and think twice before you make assumptions about indigenous peoples, stop and think twice of what you think about indigenous culture, read, read. Read as much as you can. Understand the deep, deep scarring of the genocide that is upon us, but which, through the extraordinary—how um, do you even describe the the resilience—that mm. uh, for for instance, that the Wet'suwet'en still know what traditional hereditary leadership looks like after all the attempts to ban it to, I mean, you look at, you look at the, uh, I mean, where I live with Sonic territory and I, there are, well, one of our local chiefs, uh, Chief Don Tom is now one of the vice presidents of the BC Council of Indian Chiefs, but he's so good at explaining, you know, he said, I'm an an Indian act chief uh, who wants to work myself out of a job because I know that in my community really It's the family houses, and it's the matriarchs who are in charge, and Mm -hmm. the decision-making structure isn't the one I'm in. I mean, if we could, as settler culture Canadians, really understand the extraordinary courage and resilience and, and spiritual integrity of many different nations and many different peoples on this continent who were here first and who've survived an attempted genocide i'd say attempted because it hasn't succeeded in really destroying the culture the wisdom yeah. the knowledge that you know all of what i am honored to sometimes begin to understand so i know i'm i'm not really very articulate about exactly why but i do think the sa- the salvation for our society and the next century for canada we will be an entirely different country if we get reconciliation right and we'll be a much better, richer, and I mean in terms of the, the, you know, the big questions like, why am I here, what's the point of life, what's out there beyond human existence, what's more important than the economy, kind of the big questions. We will be a richer people at, if settler culture Canadians begin to understand um, the richness of an Indigenous worldview.
0: Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'd love to have you again. I feel like this conversation could go on and on and on. So again, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, Thank you very much.